Welcome to Tough on Art, the podcast for artists interested in ways to get ahead in today's art market. I'm Jen Tuff, owner of Jen Tuff Gallery and the Artist Alliance community. Join me for some down-to-earth talk about the best ways for artists to navigate this new and different landscape. I'm very excited today to present this interview with Santa Cruz, California-based artist, Miriam Hitchcock. But before we get started, I wanna personally invite you to become a member of the Artist Alliance, where we're one month into our stay-at-home winter residency. The Artist Alliance offers emerging and mid-career artists of any medium and style, a community of like-minded, friendly, and supportive artists of all levels. We also offer a ton of informative workshops and meetups, promotion on our Instagram channel, challenges and exhibitions where members earn 100% on any sales. Membership is only 36 bucks a month, you guys. Cancel anytime. So join us. Don't wait. Sign up at artistalliancemembership.com. Miriam primarily makes paintings, often using eccentric shaped formats. She uses a hybrid visual language that is both abstract and figurative, fusing domestic and landscape elements. To me, her work is simultaneously quirky and elegant. Her shaped substrates have an animated quality that magically work with her simplified forms and color. Miriam's home and studio are on an arroyo in Santa Cruz, California, where she lives with her spouse, two cats, and an Australian shepherd. A Bay Area native, Miriam completed her BFA at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and received her MFA in painting from Yale. She began teaching painting, drawing, and design at Brown and Rhode Island School of Design. She was also an assistant professor at Cornell University, led studio courses in Rome, Italy, through both Cornell and the American University in Rome. Returning to live in Santa Cruz in 1990, she taught drawing and painting courses at Stanford and San Jose State. She was a continuous member of the art faculty at University of California, Santa Cruz from 1992 until 2012. You can find Miriam's work on the Gentuff Gallery website, on Artsy, and on Miriam's website. All links, of course, are in the show notes. I can't wait to get started. So hi, everybody. Welcome to Tough on Art. I'm Jen, and today I am talking to the infamous Miriam Hitchcock. (laughs) And Miriam, you're in Santa Cruz right now, right? Yes, I am. And you're in a cold studio, I understand. Yeah, it's it's gradually warming up, but yeah. Yeah, everybody thinks that California is always so warm. Like when I was living in Ohio, you know, I remember the first time I went to San Francisco, I was like in, you know, I was maybe like 14 and I thought, oh, you know, you always just think of LA or San Diego, right? Yeah. Like you think it's always going to be, you know, beachy and and it's not. It can be cold and it can even be cold in LA in Southern California. Oh yeah, and, and San Francisco famously gets very, very cold. Well, my studio is a converted garage. So there's a cement floor. And I've got a rubber a rubber uh, floor covering the cement, but you know it's slow to heat up. It's actually great in the heat of the summer, and we really do have a lot of those days. So this is a really great place to be in the warmer months. Yeah. So how long have you been in Santa Cruz or California? Tell me about your background. Well, I was born in California. I was born in San Francisco and grew up on the peninsula. And, and then I went, see, I went to college in Santa Cruz. I loved Santa Cruz early on. So this is going back a ways. This is like the 70s. And, um, you know, I love this place. It's a, it's a very special sort of location. You know, there's, a, there's uh, surf and sand and there's uh, beautiful redwood forests and 
great hiking paths and good birding. And it's just a lovely place. And back when I originally was attracted to the place, it was very counterculture. You know, it was like a hippie campus. And, uh, you know, plop right down in the middle of this beautiful redwood forest. So, you know, that I was just kind of grew up as a kind of quintessential say, hippie uh, California girl. And I didn't really get a perspective on that at all until I moved east for grad school. And so I went to grad school, started teaching, tried to stay in and around New York, bounced back and forth a little bit. But I moved back here after teaching my job at Cornell, which was a three-year job. And part of that three-year job, I got to go to Italy and teach. I was teaching Cornell students in Italy, so that was... But I, I felt really pressed upon the, uh, the full-time faculty duties were really rough on me for various reasons. I have a three-year-old, and I decided to take a year's leave of absence and come back to Santa Cruz. And my partner had a little house here. So once I got here, I really didn't want to go back to academia <laughs> in that way, in that same role. So I stayed, and uh, my partner started making, making some money so that we had a two-working household. And he's an electrician, or was an electrician. And I started teaching part-time, and that, that worked great. So I taught, I've taught in this area part-time. It was really like coming home. And, you know, I've realized that home's important to me. And uh, my daughter, I love the idea of raising my daughter in California and having her be a Californian. She was starting to develop a, a strange accent. So I just had to get back. And... Um, you know, I knew it would come with sacrifices because the art world was very, even more monolithic back then and mm-hmm. around New York. And even the L.A. scene wasn't really up and running. So I knew I'd be in an isolated location, but my, my academic duties had kept me in a very isolated place anyway. So I decided to just go back and regroup. And I've stayed. So for you know, since 1992 to 2012, I was just sort of teaching in and around this area, mostly at UCSC, back at UCSC, a very different department, very different environment than the one that I studied in. I loved teaching, but then the time came to sort of step away. And when I could step away, I did. That was in 2012. So now I have, I don't have to juggle, you know, my life in the classroom and the money-making life with my studio life, which for so many years was the big issue, you know, from raising my daughter and grabbing hours between naps, all that, picking her up from school, all those years. So, you know, I have really had three jobs for a long time. Like, I mean, this is pretty typical probably. So I had raising uh, a daughter, even though I had a partner to help me with that. And I had the teaching for money. And then I had you know, trying to get in my studio every minute. And it's nice to have a more relaxed, have, you know, own your own time now. I mean, it's an amazing luxury. I wake up and, you know, I look at my partner and say, isn't it great we don't have to go to work? You know, I do work and I always get sort of bristly when people say I'm a, a woman of leisure or something because I do work very hard this year. I, put, I, love, I love being in here. I put in a lot of hours and, and it's great. I finally have a nice kind of versatile space so that I can work on paper, 
I can work on the floor. I have an animation table, which is a very kind of crude setup with an overhead camera mount. And I can move between works on paper and paintings pretty easily. So all that in answer to your question of how long have I been in Santa Cruz? <laughs> yeah, well, t- let's go back a little bit to when you said that you first went to the East Coast yeah. from California. When, yeah. when was that? And was that when you went for grad school? Yes, I went to grad school at, at Yale. Yale. Uh-huh. Yeah. What and, year was that? What, what it was 79. Oh, because you know what? I remember hearing, I was in college in the 80s, early 80s, and I remember hearing, or sorry, mid 80s. What am I saying? I remember hearing how sexist and boys club Yale was in their painting department. Yeah. It, yeah. It I mean, they, they, were, they were aware of it, I think. But, and, you know, I mean, the whole context for art making was still very biased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but at that time it was really pronounced and it wasn't until I got to the east coast and to grad school that I had female teachers in painting so they had a very predominantly male faculty but they uh, made sure that they had visiting artists that were women mm-hmm. and some of the visiting artists came in and stayed for a year and taught classes you know so it was a, like a temporary position and so in the, I got to work with Judy Pfaff and Elizabeth Murray. And that, that was just like amazingly great for me, you know, like just to, yeah, I mean, in so many subtle and big ways, talking to a woman and seeing how they navigate, seeing how they teach too, because the model of teaching that I had sort of gone through, I wasn't particularly happy with. So you know, it helped me find my feet and it was an exciting time to be there. Although it was a very polarized sort of a scene there. There was the figurative artists and there was the abstractionists. And I kind of, you know, I had been happy sort of bridging both in undergrad. And when I went to Yale, I sort of joined the abstract camp. And then I did that for the full time I was there, actually for about 10 years, I painted abstractly. And uh, it was a nice way for me to sort of understand formal issues. You know, it was kind of a, it was kind of a path clearing for me. Everything kind of laid bare so that I could concentrate on formal issues. I really hadn't heard, even heard the word formal until I went to graduate school. So I had a lot of catching up to do. My, my peers there all seemed more in tune with what was going on. A lot of them had gone to art schools. A lot of them were from New York. It was a big culture clash for me. And I didn't feel it so much as a sexist environment as just a huge culture clash coming from, you know, my free love hippie hippie days to, you know, New Haven is a pretty harsh urban environment. I don't know if they've improved it, but, you know, you had to really be on guard. I was living in the city for the first time there. Yeah, I, I well, I had a, when I lived in Los, I lived in Los Angeles most of my life. And even just going in the 90s, I moved to Philadelphia for a job. And the it, there was a culture clash for sure. I mean, I remember, you know, first I gave up my car, you know, which was, that was enough. But it just even just the, you know, just the, 
the sort of um, the interactions that you have with people in stores or, you know, everybody honked, you know, like even if you're a red light, car, cars are honking, you know, and it was, it's just this sort of this, there's like this compared to California, there's like this aggression kind of, you know, but yes. there, there is people feel each other out and just interact differently. I mean, I don't know to what extent it's still like that, but it was it was very conspicuous to me. And I, I sort of just uh, shut up and watched for a while. And my, unlike a lot of people who sort of found graduate school could be kind of a finishing school and they bounce out on the art scene. For me, it was a very turbulent time of self-examination in terms of art making. And, you know, it was very disruptive. And uh, there's a lot of upheaval in my work. I didn't really make good work there. But I, it was, you know, really critical to my development, you know, and I really loved the fact that I could go there and I could go and listen to critiques where people cared about painting. They cared about painting so much that they argued and they, you know, they argued with, you know, gusto. It, it was exciting because part of the difficulty of, that I found of being a painter out here and being an artist in general is that the isolation and finding people who care as much as you do about it. So mm -hmm. Yale really gave me that. And I just ate it up. I just ate it up. It was a huge growing um, period for me. Yeah, there's um, the difference in crits between um, East Coast and West. Could Somebody could write a book on that. <laughs> because people on the West Coast, I think, are like, they're afraid of hurting feelings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and so there, you know, I'm not really sure how constructive sometimes crits can be because there's just this general culture of, you know, not wanting to hurt feelings. And so, you know, there's just, there's a lot of priority put on expression versus like more of those formal things that you touched on, you yeah. know, in, in, in school. It's, it's interesting, but I mean, it sounds like you're, you know, just basically stressed out while you were in grad school, just this yeah. cultural difference, right? Uh -huh. Well, I was just immensely stimulated, you know? I mean, it was, it was really thrilling. It was really very exciting, uh, more than stressed out. I mean, I suppose I was. I remember that I'd lay in bed at night and I would have like a slideshow of images going through my head. I was just being, you know, bombarded with new ideas, new imagery. I was working really hard, long hours in the studio and arguing and talking with other, with my peers. And yeah, it's kind of nice that, well, it used to be more, maybe more so, but it, it's nice that the academic setting can give the, the person who is the faculty member the um, permission to be critical, you know, and that's a lot harder to get among your peers. I mean, it's, it's rare that you can have a friendship. I do have some, thankfully, where you can actually say, you know, that's not working and this is why I think so, you know, and that's, that's so important. It is important. How was it when you were in Italy teaching? What was that? What was that like? Um, well, it was my first time in Italy, which was kind of odd. I I was asked to teach there. Actually, I volunteered to teach there after the person who was supposed to, who was in line to go, who was uh, also a fairly new faculty member, but she dropped out. She had sort of a personal uh, issue. And so I was really the only choice of the faculty. And uh, I was really green. I hadn't, you know, never having been to Italy. So I was in the art and in an art and architecture program. And we were right in Centro Storico in the Palazzo Massimo. 
And I had a group of about 10 students, so really small compared to the classes I was used to teaching. I took only 10 students over with me. And a lot of what we did there was just interfacing with the city and learning about architecture on the side because we had this very strong architecture program that we were attached to. And it's just obviously the thing to do when you're in Rome because it's a monumental place with such deep history. And I, I got along pretty well there. I've, I've since taught in Italy, so it's hard for me to remember back to my Cornell time in Italy. I had, we had a little studio in the basement and a pretty good group of kids. Cornell students in general were well prepared to concentrate on their work. And so that wasn't an issue. It was, it was a great experience. The hardest thing was having a three-year-old daughter So thankfully, I took my partner with me, and he was kind of my wife, but he put our three-year-old daughter on a bus out of town every morning where she'd go to the American school, and she learned to count with her thumb first. You know, she was learning some real Italian. She's got a great accent still, even though she doesn't really speak it. So that was, you know, teaching and having, you know, demands of the job and the workplace while you have young kids is stressful. So... It was without a doubt stressful, but also just very, very cool, very stimulating, very eye-opening. I mean, Rome is a place where you can stand on a corner and really see the layers of history. And uh, for California, you know, it just about knocks you down. It's, it's phenomenal, you know, to get that tangible glimpse. Time, really, the evidence. So I kind of craved that as a Californian. I think it, it has uh, informed the fact that when I travel, I like to go to ancient places. And so in general, when I think back on teaching for Cornell the first time, it was, it was great. The chair of the Italian segment was Iunaudi, Roberto Iunaudi, and he was in charge of restoration of monuments. He had this, he's from a very prominent family, and he had this great sort of entree to the sites So, for instance, when we went to Pompeii, he had the keys and he would open the doors that were usually locked to the the public. And so there were field trips obviously involved in it. And, you know, again, that whole immersion and a new culture was exciting and stimulating and wonderful. I've I've gone back many, many times. I seem to go back just by the chance I get. And if I'm planning a trip, I usually try and put a few days in Rome there because I've gotten to know it pretty well. It's nice. It's a place I can land and don't have to look at a map, you know, which is kind of great, you know, because when you travel, it can be so stressful. And I have, you know, favorite places to visit and uh, it's great. I've had a lot of chance to draw from a lot of the collections there now. It's a great place. And I didn't want to come back to Ithaca, New York, where, where, where Cornell is, because that's really yeah. up there in the, uh, the cold uh, northeast, part of the Northeast. And they are, they still have jackets on and have freezing ice storms in March sometimes. So again, being in California, that was um, difficult. And actually my life at Cornell was far more difficult than my life when I was teaching in Italy or Cornell. That was kind of a nice vacation, although mm-hmm. there's, there's plenty of work to do. Right. But vacation from colleagues. I mean, those, those sort of Ivy League and those schools can really have a lot of tension between faculty members. And um, 
you know, there were lawsuits between faculty members. There's a lot of unpleasant really? drama. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I fortunately wasn't involved, but there was a lot of, a lot of tension. What kind of lawsuits would, would teachers have against oh, you remember? I mean, yeah. don't give names, but there was one I remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that was the big one. And then there were other, there was always, people were very, pri- very, you know, there was always, everything was very compartmentalized. Like it, every, every action was political. And that again was very uncomfortable and very new for me. Yeah. But it, it became like a political issue if you said hi to somebody. And it was kind, it was very, very hard. Was and, it competitive? Was, was that the thing? Yeah, like, like the jostling for advancement within the faculty. I mean, I don't know if, this is very interesting, but usually the, the entering younger faculty get pressed upon to do a lot of duties. They're sort of proving themselves. So I did. I had, I had a lot of, which is partly why I had to leave in three years. I had a lot of extra stuff to do. And they had a small graduate program. So I was teaching classes of very serious, big classes of serious art students. And then I was teaching grad school and I had a very young daughter. Yeah. So, um, and I had all these unpleasant colleagues. <laughs> yeah, it does. It sounds pretty awful, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of I was kind of an idiot about the fact that you need alliances and you need to make alliances. I only gradually became that everybody else around me was thinking very strategically about who was on their side if a vote came to the faculty table and that sort of thing. And I tried to avoid it, and it was only to my detriment, really, because I didn't really have strong allegiances, you know. Um, also, were, were people, were professors sort of, did they advance through the ranks based on how much, I mean, I'm, I'm just talking about art professors, you yeah, know, based yeah. on their reputation outside of the school or was that, it? That helped a ton. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, like a lot of academic jobs, you advance as soon as somebody else wants to hire you. Um, and that happened if you were exhibiting and yeah, you always, I mean, I was always, I was driving to New York, which is a long and horrendous drive, especially in the weather of that part of the world and, um, trying to keep and develop, you know, a network there. Right. Um, so it was a lot to do. It was, I burned out really. <laughs> That's a lot. Cause I mean, plus you're dealing with all this sort of subtle or not so subtle sexism for sure you know and just trying to be taken seriously you know sort of not looked at as highly as a as a white male you know just in society that's a lot that's a lot to deal with and being a mom yeah yeah I mean we were aware I was aware that I was one of the early female, I was a very young female faculty member, but honestly, I spent more time thinking about, um, you know, advancing myself than I did about the fact that I was being looked down upon because I was a woman. I, I, there definitely was a sense that you had to prove yourself and maybe it was greater because I was carrying a lot of baggage about, you know, imposter syndrome, <laughs> you know, can I do this? And that's right. what yeah, I mean, isn't it weird? I don't know if you found this, but like, I think back in like the 80s and 90s, like when I was, you know, when I was working or what, you know, you know, sort of advancing through 
my career, you, you don't really like, you know, it's there like the sexism and stuff, but I didn't really notice how bad it was until like, I look back on it 20 years later. And then what? I'm like, holy shit, how, what, you know? Oh yeah. You know, and I don't know if that's because I've changed and matured or if it's because the world's changed and it's like, okay to talk about it now, or I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I think both. I think both. it's easier yeah. to talk about it now without being immediately labeled a, a you know, problem. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, when I was first getting interviewed for jobs, I was asked if I was married. I wasn't. And if you were, that was a problem, you know, that then they'd sort of say, well, how much, you know, they'd sort of feel out how much your partner made and was he willing to move and that sort of thing. And those, right. those lots of questions that are off limits. I also had the uncomfortable feeling of going through only interviews with all male faculty at one time being asked out, like ambiguously asked out right after the interview. Oh so my like, God. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just stuff that I think women knew not to do <laughs> but yeah yeah so how do you think all of these sort of experiences all these you know Italy and the sort of you know rough I mean it sounds rough like this east coast <laughs> rough right like I mean, it for me. it was for me it would have been for me too I think for anybody any woman I think in that position I mean I remember when I first saw on your resume that you you know you got your master's at Yale and I was like whoa because I just remember hearing stories about the painting department in particular oh did you yeah I think what that what might have generated that I mean there are some who knows very tough guys and yeah there was a lot of sexism for sure so how do you think, do you think that all, I mean, it has to have informed your work at this point, like just all of these experiences have sort of fed into what you're producing now, but do you see any like direct sort of correlation or response to those experiences at all? Sexism in particular. I mean, I think that's interesting. I, I'm not an artist who can take on a political or social issue straight on. I sort of do it incrementally and yeah. um, sort of choose my places and it's become apparent to me that my work is really filtered through autobiography mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I pretty consciously made a choice to to use a lot of female characters in the, the figures that I use and I had a, a strange experience when I started to use the figure again I really sort of felt like I had to learn how to if I would do it if I would just sit down and generate a figure, it would be a male figure, which was really weird. And so I felt like I had to sort of, well, I had to learn the figure. And I felt like in particular, I needed to figure out the female figure and how that could be used and should be used. Especially since it was so charged, thinking back yes. on this in the art Yes, you can feel with the models who were always female nudes, and that was never discussed really. And that was my experience. You know, I learned to draw female nudes, and I think I've kind of found my comfort and greatest area of interest in the clothed figure. Mm -hmm. And um, and I love the female clothed figure. I mean, it's it's endlessly wonderful, really. And that's it's been kind of an evolution. It's kind of hard to track, but I know initially my sort of breakthrough moment when I found myself unable to avoid the figure anymore was after having my daughter and drawing her head. 
And it sort of evolved from there. I didn't really embrace figuration again until I moved back to Santa Cruz in 1992. So I have this history on the East Coast where people knew me as an abstractionist. And, uh, and because of that sort of hard polarity and sort of two-camp system that I, you know, that was really visceral back then, I mean, it, it does exist in some form now. There was a sense that, you know, you were leaving the clan or, you know, you were, there was some betrayal there by, by breaking it up and, and leaving mm-hmm. abstraction. And I, you know, I have good female friends who are abstractionists, and I know there was some difficulty in them accepting this. You know, there's a sense that, and I really had strong conviction that abstraction is a complete language, and I loved it a lot. And so for me, the process of embracing figuration and putting that in the mix was, you know, finding a way for them to coexist, you know, overtly. I certainly, there's a lot about the tradition of figurative painting that doesn't interest me in the least. So that's why I say sometimes that I'm an abstractionist who ran out of reasons to eliminate the figure <laughs> or to not have the figure in. So, um, yeah, I still think very abstractly that I, don't know, I can't even remember your original question at this point. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. What is, you said that you found the, that you find the female form endlessly wonderful. Yeah. Well, the figure in general, but the female form especially. Yeah, I mean, the sense, the opportunity to deal with drape, yeah, the, the sort of social signaling and history of fashion is, is a part of it. And, you know, that's, that's kind of wonderful. So that becomes a part of the mix. I did a series, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it reminds me a lot of my use of the female figure. Um, I experienced a very tragic death in my family in 1995, and I became really obsessed with the afterlife, with people who were meeting death unprepared. And I was thinking a lot about this kind of limbo state. I obviously was in crisis, and I was also in therapy and reading Rilke because he helped. He's really one of the few authors I could find that kind of went out at death and afterlife. And so in that, in that sort of time period, let's see, that's like the 1990s, late 1990s, I was, I was really painting a lot of aftermath and ruin and this kind of quasi-limbo state of a person being meeting death and being unprepared for it and sort of uh, coming to terms with it and meaning how they looked. I mean, it's a great mystery, right? It is a great mystery. And because I had lost somebody very close to me and I think that person was unprepared for death, I was really consumed with this. I mean, it's very personal, but it was part of feeling like that person didn't need me anymore. And did they? You know, because when something tragic happens to somebody you're close to and you weren't there, there's just a tremendous amount of grief and concern that's hard to let go of. Yeah. Um, anyway, that project sort of culminated in this these this body of work that was really about heaven, an imagined heaven. I don't really believe in the Christian idea of heaven. It was afterlife. And I discovered that in that afterlife that I was creating, the people were really well-dressed. <laughs> I mean, they were fashionable. And, and that was really fun. So I was just, I sort of gave myself permission to, you know, from this, having been in this very abstract territory and sort of, 
rudimentarily, rudimentarily dealing with the figure in a quasi-abstract way. Then suddenly I was dealing with the details of fashion, you know, the curve of a collar and, you know, the length of the dress. I was looking at a lot of 30s and 40s women. Yeah. So yeah, I sort of, the, the dike broke there about uh, that, being, that being possible for me, you know. Because I'm aware that I'm still, you know, I'm still really rooted in that abstract language and also in that kind of polarity. It's hard for me to, I'm always asking myself questions about it. So anyway, that was an important body of work. I was glad to step away from it when I could. But I found that at that point, I, you know, it was obvious to me that I was interested in the draped figure and that, you know, I could look at fashion magazines, for God's sake, and I could enjoy them. And I could bring them into my paintings. And you know that we were talking about before about sexism and you asked a question about female body. You know, that was so difficult, such a very difficult um, subject because I'd seen it dealt with so poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I sort of kind of found my way through the draped figure and through really lifting from fashion. That's so interesting. (laughs) Do you think that, you know, sometimes I think there's always, you know, even though artists are sort of known as rule breakers and in in one sense they're told you need to be a rule breaker to, you know, to sort of make your mark in a way. But yet at the same time, there's always these rules of art school and rules of the art world. Like you're sort of touching on, you said you gave yourself permission, you know, to explore this other yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to admit, but that's you know where I sort of developed this these notions about rules was also a really critical period of growth where I really got attached to what I was making in a in a deep way, and I didn't want to lose sight of that. You know, my a lot of my heroes are abstractionists, and certainly Elizabeth Murray. So. I, I always ask myself, you know, it's always a question. And I think that slows me down. I see artists who don't have that sort of, they don't have to check in <laughs> with their history in that way. And it looks like it's a lot of fun. But for me, um, I, always, I always make changes very incrementally. And I always question. I, it reminds me of that very painful period outside, just outside of grad school, where I went in the studio and it was literally like I had 10 artists sitting there, 10 famous artists, you know, there'd be Hans Hoffman, there'd be, oh hell, there'd be Elizabeth Murray, there'd be, um, you know, Monet, <laughs> there'd be, you know, like just, yeah. a, I, I, there'd be David Smith. And I was so sort of critical and so, um, concerned with the, you know, with the tradition, I guess, really, and finding my place in it. And, uh, and I was so isolated, actually, that it took me a long time to sort of get those people out of my studio. Yeah. <laughs> and so they wouldn't beat me up and uh, keep me from doing things. But it was really like that for, for a while for me. And uh, it's not anymore, which is nice. You know, I can, I can think about that angle, you know, like, there's just a big Joan Mitchell show here in San Francisco. And, it was easy to project myself back to um, the 70s, um, 80s, and uh, abstract expressionism, of course, and the sort of aftermath or the sort of second generation abstract expressionists. 
And it was interesting to look at that work that was so very central to my thinking and so much part of my, my initial sort of growth and um, development as an artist. You know, I really thought of myself as an expressionistic, an abstract expressionist, to the extent that I, you know, started smoking, you know. So it was weird and really interesting to get some perspective on that work. I mean, I felt very far away from it. There was, I admired the work, but I didn't love the work. <laughs> you know, there was occasional paintings that I felt like I really loved, but um, it's funny. I mean, that, that's kind of a wonderful ongoing thing where artists look different to you at different times. So it was, it was fun just recently to check in with abstract expressionism in that way with Joan Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you're not the only one who said that in some ways art school can ruin you, you know, like, right? Like you always have those voices in your head and you mentioned, you know, you see other people who are abstract expressionists now and they don't have those voices. They don't have those rules and those those, those interior critics that are always, you know, to break free from that to a certain degree. Right. That's like an art in itself, right? (laughs) It's a process. And some people seem to do it more easily than others. But, you know, I think I, I generally, you know, want to behave well. I'm not a, I'm not a rebel, you know, so it's hard for me. I wanted those heroes of mine to be comfortable with what I was doing. So I was always checking in. I mean, it's kind of a preposterous scenario that I'm talking about, but it took a while. Yeah. Um, I I mean, I think it, it, I think especially for women who go through that. Absolutely. You know, because you went through that very traditional, very prestigious, you know, path of the way things should be, quote unquote. And yeah, takes a Uh, lot of liberation, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And, uh, And then, of course, there was that period. Oh, or what, late ni- um, late nineties, early two thousands, when you know people really weren't interested in painting, but the art world is showing the exhibit- exhibiting marketplace seemed to be shrinking to to painters. It just like and there was in academia there was a lot of open hostility to painting as a privileged medium, and um, you know there was a big political overlay. There always is but especially in academia. Mm -hmm. Um, So as I continue to teach, I had to sort of deal with that. And, you know, the isolation was very visceral. It's hard to be in Santa Cruz. You know, I show, there's almost no place to exhibit here. So I, um, you know, I can go outside of the area, which I I try and do often. Yeah, I kind of got lost in my thoughts, but. No, that's okay. (laughs) <laughs> this, this has been so, I love this conversation with you so much. Oh my gosh, the time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, it was really, I, I really valued this time with you, Miriam, a lot. This yeah. was great. Thanks for sharing so much. And I, I have so much admiration truly for, you know, for not only for your work, but for what you went through you know, as a woman, I mean, not saying you're like, you know, a victim or anything, but I mean, that's a lot of shit to deal with back then. Yeah. 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 And, you know, you definitely deserve a lot of, you know, you got my respect for that because there were role models, thankfully. I mean, they were out there. So yeah, but those are, those were rough days. (laughs) 
I think yeah. for women in art, especially painters. It's, it's nice to feel they're getting better. And yeah. And people like you, I think, are really taking those biases head on, which is really wonderful to see. The biases of gender and um, age. age and even geographic region. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what the, with the eighties and seventies, eighties and nineties, you know, for women, like, you know, that sort of discrimination and, or, you know, it it was never blatant. It was just, you know, it was quiet, but it was there, but now it's, it's, it's to me, the biggest issue is, is ageism. I mean, it's just, it's really, yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really bad. So anyway, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's really nice to have a chance to talk to you. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye, Jen. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. Your support means everything. If you'd like to learn more about the Artist Alliance community, send me a question or learn about other events or projects coming up, please visit my website at www.gentuff.gallery. See you next time.